this is the start of a whole new series. Um, We're starting with the life of Jesus, the early years. So if this is your first class series in A Gentle Ramble Through the Bible, please know that this is first and foremost a safe space. The first 30 minutes is me telling the story. Then we break into small groups for a 15-minute discussion, after which we come back together to share our thoughts and questions and insights. Everything except the 15-minute small group breakout is recorded and made available publicly afterwards. So manage your comments and your videos and your name, whatever, you know, you have control over what is seen and what is said. I'm just letting you know that everything is recorded except the small group breakouts. We have people from all sorts of religious backgrounds or none there, you know, and we have folks from across the entire political and religious spectrum. We have folks on the far right and folks on the far left. So we take special care not to disparage or judge anyone or disrespect their point of view. There is, we don't hold forth on, you know, we don't get up on our soapbox. We don't try to convince someone else, you know, uh, to that, of, of what they should think the this space, this time is about you and what you understand. This is about giving you new tools, new insights, and new perspectives. So give each other space, treat each other with gentleness, with respect, and openness. And speaking of openness, The Gentle Ramble classes are specifically designed to help folks think deeply about their faith. We all come to this with preconceptions, things we've been taught, things we've always believed and never questioned. For this hour, we set our baggage down at the door and allow ourselves this space to question and to challenge and to stretch ourselves. Let yourself be stretched and surprised without feeling like you have to make an immediate decision. Let new things percolate in your soul. I think the Holy Spirit has an easier time guiding us if we're already moving. And lastly, because we're studying the Bible, which uses male pronouns for God, I use male pronouns while I'm teaching. Otherwise, it would be very confusing. So just know that I realize that God is far beyond any concept of gender and that the creator encompasses all that we are. So, Whether you're a beginner or an experienced backpacker, you are welcome on this ramble. As we go along, we'll use what we call backpack tools to interpret scripture. You'll find a handy list of backpack tools in the reference section of your study guide. But don't worry, whenever we use a backpack tool, I'll show you how to use it. Um, there's no advanced prep for this class that's required, you know, you, you, none of that. This is designed to be accessible. I don't want you to be subject, however, to someone else's or even my take on scripture. I want you to be able to understand and interpret it responsibly yourself. So shrug that pack on and let's get started. The first backpack tools we'll use are political context and geography. So you might want to grab your study guide printout or a sheet of paper to jot things down on because there may be a few surprises as we go along. For the last couple hundred years before Jesus, the three main world powers, as far as Israel is concerned, have been the Seleucids, this this big yellow part, who have controlled Palestine. See how the yellow part on the map dips all the way down 
to Jerusalem and beyond. That's all been part of the Seleucid Empire. And, and they're weakening, by the way. There are also the Egyptians who have been fighting constantly with the Seleucids, tramping back and forth across Palestine. And the Romans, who are rising quickly as a world power, they are, they are beginning to dominate at this point. Around 165 BCE, we meet a Levite named Mattathias and his five sons. They revolt against the horrible atrocities of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who brutally tortures and kills Jews and desecrates the temple in an effort to stamp out their faith. Well, this priest and his sons succeed in winning freedom for the Jews. And, and it takes them a long time, but they do it. And that the, the family is given the name the Maccabees after that son in the middle, Judas Maccabeus. His, that nickname means the hammer. But their actual family name is Hasmon, not Maccabees. Maccabees was a nickname. And the dynasty of kings and high priests that they eventually establish comes to be called the Hasmonean dynasty. It's important to realize that for the preceding 400 years before Christ, the highest ranking Jew, the high priest, has not been a descendant of Aaron. The high priest has been appointed by whichever king happens to have power over Palestine at the time, secular king. And that practice does not change with the Hasmoneans. They happen to be Levites, but they hold the priesthood because of their military and political might. The mightiest leader they produce is Simon, one of the original five brothers. He has the military might of Israel at his disposal, of course, but he is also a wise and good leader. But then Simon the Great is assassinated by his son-in-law. And his son, John Hyrcanus, becomes high priest of Judea. By the way, the area where the Jews live has many names during this period. You will hear the names Israel, Judea, and Palestine used interchangeably. So don't let that confuse you. Occasionally, the, the word Judea will refer to a smaller southern area um, where Jerusalem is, but I'll try to be clear whenever we're just only talking about that tiny, smaller regional area. For the most part, Israel, Judea, and Palestine, Palestine are like the same thing. Anyway, John Hyrcanus is the first of the Hasmoneans to see himself as both high priest and king of Judea. Up to then, they'd been high priests, but never called themselves kings. Well, he's a harsh leader and very ambitious. His reign is marked by war with the surrounding areas. He has big plans to expand the borders of Judea. This is a close-up of the land of Palestine. To understand the significance of what John Hyrcanus is doing, we need to remember a couple of things. First, remember that after Israel and Judah divided into two separate nations after the death of King Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel established their capital at Samaria. That's why the northern Israelites came to be called Samaritans. They set up their own temple on Mount Gerasim in Samaria. By this time, um, their temple has been a holy site for the Samaritans for hundreds of years. They even have their own version of the Torah. It's, it's similar, but they've tweaked it a little. Um, so that Mount Gerasim becomes the holy mountain instead of Mount Sinai, that kind of thing. But John Hyrcanus, when he comes to power, he destroys the Samaritan temple. He also wants to spread south to the Edomites, who have long been enemies of Israel, even though they're actually descendants of Isaac's son Esau. 
Greek is now the lingua franca of the world. So the Edomites are now called Idumeans in Greek. It's the same folks. The Idumeans have traditionally held the land at the southeastern tip of the Dead Sea. But now they've spread west around the end of the Dead Sea and kind of up into, into Judea. We know from the Hebrew Bible that they worship idols, not Yahweh. By the way, another note um, on vocabulary. When I say Hebrew Bible, I'm talking about the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible has the same contents as the Old Testament. The only difference is that the books are arranged in a different order. We use, we use in this class the term Hebrew Bible because that's the term scholars generally use. If you were in any of the classes that covered the Hebrew Bible, I need to make a correction here. I found a couple of places in other class series where I said the Edomites worshiped either Molech or Chemosh, but that was wrong. The Ammonites worshiped Molech, the Moabites worshiped Chemosh, but the Edomite idol is never explicitly named in the Hebrew Bible. It is only from archaeological research that we know the name of the Idumean god is Kos. Anyway, in his expansion of territory, John Hyrcanus forces the Idumeans to give up their idol Kos and convert to Judaism. Remember this, it'll come into play in a minute. The Idumeans were forced into Judaism, but they're idol worshipers at heart. And there's another religious and political development around this time. This is when the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to coalesce as distinct religious groups within Judaism. The Pharisees are a group of scholars and lawyers. The lawyers are called scribes in many New Testament translations. And you, and you hear like the phrase frequently um, in the New Testament, the Pharisees and scribes or the scribes and the Pharisees. That's because they're kind of like linked at the hip. The, the, they are laymen who are experts in the law and are very popular with the people. The Pharisees believe that the oral teachings of Judaism that have been handed down generation through generation by tradition over the centuries, those oral teachings, they believe, were actually given to Moses on Mount Sinai at the same time as the Ten Commandments, but he just didn't write them down. So they teach that the oral Torah bears as much weight as the written Torah. This is very similar to how the Catholic Church, for example, views Christian tradition within their denomination. The Pharisees are willing to ask questions and engage in dialogue, sometimes endless dialogue, on even the most minute points of the Mosaic Law. This is like their hobby. This is what they do. And they're the ones who teach the people what the law says about every aspect of their life and worship. And as you might expect from this description, the Pharisees are more likely to absorb the relatively recent theological ideas in, in, their, in the cultures. For example, ideas about there being a resurrection and a judgment on the last day. This idea of a last day resurrection is something that has long been part of Persian and other cultures where the Jews, that the Jews have been exiled among. And this idea has crept into the Jewish culture. We see evidence of it in the book of Daniel, which was written while they were in exile and in Babylon. Um, and it makes sense that the Pharisees, given their approach to oral Torah, would be open to seeing the consistency of this belief in a last day resurrection, that that would be consistent with the nature of God as revealed in the law and the prophets. They, the, the idea that, that there is some future where God will bring justice. 
is is something that they could see is consistent with who God is. So with their endorsement, the general cultural belief in a final resurrection and judgment now has the full weight and authority of this major segment of Judaism. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are society's elite. They are the ruling class. They are the rich and powerful people and therefore include the high priests and chief priests. Their name, in fact, is the Greek version of the name Zadok. You can kind of see that in Sadducees, Zadok, the famous warrior priest of old who helped anoint Solomon as the king of Israel. The word Zadok literally means righteous in Hebrew. They named themselves the righteous ones. So these folks may or may not be righteous, but they are definitely self-righteous. They do not believe that the oral tradition carries the same weight as the written Torah. So this is a big point of contention between them and the Pharisees. It's like a power struggle here. As the priestly class, that their jobs are linked directly to the operation of the temple. Kind of obviously, duh, right? Since the high priesthood is a political appointment, the Sadducees are more secular. They're more Hellenized than the Pharisees. They're plugged in to the political power, power, uh, ruling power. They're not nearly as close to the common people as the Pharisees are. The Pharisees draw their power base from the people. The Sadducees draw their power from Rome or whoever is ruling Palestine at the moment. And since the Sadducees are the more conservative of the two groups, it is no surprise that they vehemently oppose this new idea of a resurrection and judgment on the last day. They stick with the original concept of Sheol from the Hebrew writings. In the Hebrew Bible, Sheol is like a graveyard. It's neutral. It's not good and it's not bad. It's neither one. It's simply where you go when you are dead. Justice for a Sadducee would have to happen in this life or through their descendants, whereas the Pharisees can look to a resurrection and a judgment day where justice is served. It makes a big difference in how you answer questions about justice, the Odyssey. There are more differences between these two groups. And one of the best charts I've seen can be found online at jewishvirtuallibrary.org under Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. We're, we're going to talk about the Essenes in a future class. All right, so back to the political power shifts. At the same time, the Hasmonean high priest, John Hyrcanus, is forcing Judaism on the Idumeans, the Pharisees challenge his right to be high priest at all. According to Josephus, a historian who lived at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees claim that John's mother had been taken captive and ravaged by the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, this would apparently disqualify her descendants from serving as high priests. So even though that sort of disqualification is not written anywhere in the law, apparently this is part of their oral tradition. So in a rage at this insult, John Hyrcanus switches religious parties and becomes a Sadducee. When John Hyrcanus dies, his will stipulates that his son Aristobulus will become high priest while his wife, who remains unnamed, will become the ruler. Well, that doesn't sit well with Aristobulus. He wants to be high priest and ruler like his dad. So he kills or imprisons all his brothers and throws his mother in prison, where she eventually starves to death. Then he names himself king of Judea. Fortunately, he only lasts about a year before he dies of painful abdominal problems. His wife, Queen Salome Alexandra, releases his brother Alexander Yanai from prison, and under Leveret Law, they marry. 
That's that old law, the Hebrew law that says if a man dies without a son, his nearest kinsman must marry his widow so his line does not die out. And you can see how that law is related to the whole idea of Sheol, that if you are dead, you're dead. So you have to live on through your descendants and justice that may have been denied you can be brought to your descendants. So it's vital to that worldview that every man have at least one male descendant to carry on his line. Alexander Yanai's ill-advised military campaigns against Egypt, Syria, and the Arabs result in wholesale slaughter of the Jews and the people revolt against him, led apparently by the Pharisees. This civil war lasts something like six years, but Alexander Yanai is able to cling precariously to control. In about 85 BCE, he orders the crucifixion of 800 of his countrymen, slaughtering their wives and children in front of them. So look at the date. Note that this wholesale crucifixion, this civil war, is a mere 80 years before Jesus' birth. At the age of 49, Alexander Yanai's hard living finally catches up with him. And on his deathbed, he urges his wife, Salome, to appease the Pharisees so it will be easier for her to rule the kingdom. Alexander Yanai's will leaves the kingdom in Salome's hands. Well, they have two sons. Hyrcanus II is backed by the Pharisees while Aristobulus II is backed by the Sadducees. And Salome appoints the younger son, Hyrcanus II, as high priest to try to make peace with the Pharisees. Aristobulus, of course, is angered that his brother Hyrcanus gets to be high priest, so he rages a, raises a rebellion with the help of the Sadducees. He actually defeats Hyrcanus and declares himself high priest and king literally 30 minutes before his mother's death. Wow, Hyrcanus doesn't take this lying down. He has a well-connected advisor named Antipater, whom the Romans appointed as governor of the Idumeans down south. And Antipater drums up military help for Hyrcanus. But Aristobulus counters by calling for backup for his cause from the Roman military stationed in Syria. His brother Hyrcanus then appeals directly to the great Roman general Pompey, who happens to be in Damascus in, in Syria. And not to be outdone, Aristobulus sends his appeal to General Pompey as well. Let Pompey decide which brother should be high priest and king. Then Aristobulus makes a big strategic error. Instead of awaiting General Pompey's decision, he attacks the fortress at Alexandrium. Well, Pompey sees this as a threat to peace in the region, and he immediately takes Aristobulus prisoner and goes on to attack Jerusalem, where Aristobulus's Sadducee followers are based. The Sadducees barricade themselves inside the temple, but Pompey is let into Jerusalem by supporters of Hyrcanus. And once inside the city gates, Pompey besieges the temple. And after three months, he breaches the temple walls and slaughters the thousands of supporters of Aristobulus who are holed up inside. Pompey even enters the Holy of Holies in the temple. And by some accounts, he's quite disappointed to find it empty, not realizing it's been empty for years. He's apparently mystified as to why the Jews would make such a big deal over an empty room. Pompey reinstates Hyrcanus II as high priest, but no longer allows him to call himself king. From this point on, the entire region of Palestine is kept firmly under Roman control. The Jews have lost their hard-won independence. 
Eventually, however, Aristobulus and his sons, Alexander and Antigonus, escape from Rome where they've been held captive. They cause a great deal of trouble in Palestine, resulting in the slaughter of even more Jews. Aristobulus ends up getting poisoned. And General Pompey, who is locked in a power struggle with Julius Caesar, orders that his son Alexander be beheaded. Eventually, General Pompey himself is killed and Julius Caesar gains control of the Roman Empire. This leaves only Hyrcanus and Antigonus on the playing field in Palestine. Antigonus um, goes to, uh, is going to fight Hyrcanus for the rule of Palestine in every way that he can. But remember Hyrcanus's good friend Antipater? He's still the Roman governor of Idumea, and he's a serious political player who is also a talented military leader. And he's been cozy with General Pompey. But when he sees the tide turning against Pompey and in favor of Julius Caesar, he and Hyrcanus both switch sides and support Caesar instead. As a reward, Caesar reconfirms Hyrcanus as high priest and makes Antipater a Roman citizen, gives him a bunch of very high honors. Caesar rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and sets the Jews' annual tribute to Rome at 12.5% with an exemption during the Sabbath year. The relationship between Caesar and the Jews is relatively good. They're very glad he's conquered the hated Pompey who had defiled the temple, right? And Caesar is generally quite tolerant of the Jews, but things do not remain quiet and peaceful. Antigonus, Aristobulus's remaining son, goes to Caesar and accuses Antipater and Hyrcanus of only supporting Caesar to keep from being punished for originally helping Pompey, which was actually probably true. But according to Josephus, the historian, Antipater strips off his clothes and declares to Caesar that his battle scars themselves speak for his loyalty to Caesar. Caesar agrees and sides with Antipater. He makes Antipater procurator of Judea. That's basically the CFO, the chief financial officer. And Caesar affirms Hyrcanus as high priest. So now Antipater himself has two sons, Faisal and Herod. And all, all of them, the whole family, are Idumeans from the southern area around the Dead Sea. And they are Jews, but only because about a hundred years ago, John Hyrcanus's ancestor forced them to convert. It's never been bone deep for them. It's always been more of a political move. Antipater makes Faisal governor of Jerusalem and makes Herod governor over Galilee. Now, despite the picture here, Herod is only in his twenties at this point and young Herod takes to power like a fish to water, and he quickly steps over the line. Some of the Jews accuse Herod of usurping the high priest Hyrcanus's power and of illegally executing someone without the proper approval. Hyrcanus wavers. He's always been like an uncle to Herod. Has Herod betrayed him? Hyrcanus grits his teeth and calls Herod to trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a new term, and it's one we'll run into a lot in the New Testament. It's essentially the Supreme Court of the Jews, and it's made up of the high priest, the chief priests under them, under him, and the high-ranking Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's the religious elite. Um, and it had first been established by Salome Alexandra, Hyrcanus's mother. At this time, the Sanhedrin is allowed to recommend capital punishment, but they're not allowed to actually execute anyone. That right is reserved by the Romans. So they are, in essence, a judicial and administrative arm of the Roman government in Judea. They 
you know, Rome appoints the high priest and the Sanhedrin is in fact responsible for collecting taxes and remitting them to Rome. So um, this is like an arm of the Roman government, but it's also the Supreme Court of the Jews. So if Herod actually has executed someone without the recommendation of the Sanhedrin and without the approval of the Romans, he's in deep trouble. But when it comes time for his trial, Herod receives support from the governor of Syria. And since Hyrcanus loves Herod like a son, Hyrcanus as high priest acquits Herod. And Herod flees to Syria, where the governor of Syria appoints him governor of Qualisurea, as well as Samaria, the region just north of Jerusalem. Talk about landing on your feet, right? So now he's not only governor of Galilee, his original remit, but his territory has expanded significantly. It's right about this time that Julius Caesar is assassinated by Cassius and Brutus. Cassius comes to Syria to take control there, and he imposes a heavy tax on the Jews. Herod curries favor by being the first one to collect and deliver taxes from his jurisdiction. Then Cassius departs, leaving Palestine in the hands of Antipater and his sons, Faisal and Herod. Then one of Antipater's enemies poisons him. Faisal and Herod are enraged, and Herod eventually gets permission from Cassius to avenge his father's death, and Herod personally kills the perpetrator. So at this point, Hyrcanus is still high priest, Faisal is governor of Jerusalem, and Herod is governor over a huge area north of Jerusalem, including Samaria, Galilee, and Qualisarea. I think it'll be helpful to look at a family tree at this point. Let's back up just a little and start with the Hasmonean priest and king, Alexander Yanai. He had two sons, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus II. Hyrcanus is currently high priest. Aristobulus had two sons. The eldest was Alexander and the youngest is Antigonus. Alexander, as you know, was beheaded by Pompey, but before he got beheaded, he married Hyrcanus's daughter, Alexandra, and they had a daughter named Mariamne. So Mariamne is granddaughter of both Aristobulus and Hyrcanus. She's a Hasmonean double princess. And she turns out to be the great love of Herod's life. After all, Herod and his father Antipater have been close friends of the Hasmonean family for many years. Herod has known Mariamne her whole life. She's literally the girl next door, and she'll soon catch Herod's attention. Well, Antigonus, Mariamne's uncle, makes a run at overthrowing Herod. This is actually the second time he's tried this. And this time, Antigonus prevails. Herod's brother Faisal, who is governor over Jerusalem, and Hyrcanus himself are taken prisoner by Antigonus. Antigonus cuts off Hyrcanus's ears so he can never again serve as high priest. But Herod escapes and flees to Rome, where to his utter surprise, he is made king of Judea by the Roman Senate. You see, the Romans do not want Antigonus and his allies to gain a foothold in Palestine, and they know Herod is their toady. So they give Herod an army and send him back to Judea, where with the help of Mark Antony, he defeats Antigonus. Antigonus is beheaded, Herod marries Mariamne, and at the age of 36 becomes sole ruler of Judea. What a story. I'd be willing to bet there were a couple of surprises in there for you. And I can't wait to hear what you all come up with in your breakout groups. Pull out your printout of the last page of your study guide, and I'm going to put you into your uh, breakout groups. And we will uh, get back together in um, oh, 15 minutes or so and talk about what you all come up with all together. So I'm dying to know what, what things stuck out uh, to you in all of this. 
did you find anything new in here? <laughs> yes. I need to let Renee and Martha talk for me. <laughs> it blew me away because who knew that the Sadducees were political and that Herod shouldn't have been even there and that he invited they invited Rome into Jerusalem. I just thought they came in and conquered them just like they did everything else. They were invited. It was like, mm. this stuff is stuff that should be in the regular Bible. <laughs> they need to, I mean, they this need is to a, have a, a history before they start this stuff. What were those writers thinking, right? Exactly. Why did they leave this stuff out? <laughs> well, because they lived it, right? They yeah. thought everybody knew this. They didn't mm. know we were going to read this 2,000 years later. <laughs> They'd have been a lot more careful with what they said. <laughs> I I was not aware of so many tensions within Jerusalem, Judea itself, and all of this going back and forth, and how very little peace there was. Um, those poor people. I, I, your average citizen, I am sure they were just like sick and tired of the whole thing. Right. I mean, and we only touched on the tail end of it, right? I mean, when we studied the Hebrew Bible in the other class series, it just was, it's been going on for centuries. Yeah. Well, you know, it does make it, it does, you know, I had always sort of understood that one of the reasons that the the people were so ready for the arrival of the Messiah was because of Rome. And, and I'm sure, you know, yeah, Rome was the big bad in the moment, but again, you know, to Julie's point, they had lived under revolt, revolution, assassination, mass slaughter, political intrigue, forever they needed somebody to come in and be king be the righteous king be a righteous king exactly martha you had something to say which uh, is an enormous threat to everybody else to follow on to marlene donna has put in a chat that there are many reasons they might leave this content out political stuff the time was a powder keg and um something i can't quite make out what she means she said i had no idea how much so oh. how much so thought I'm not quite sure what she means there but I used to get in trouble in both my old testament class and my new I moderated it in my new testament class under the same professor about trying to apply what I was learning to my understanding of the church and my faith in the present I'm gonna violate the rule <laughs> And I'm going to, uh, she said she had no idea how tumultuous it was. I'm going to violate that rule and mention what I did in our small group, which is what does, it's going to be very interesting over these next few weeks with this larger context, more than we had the lawyers and the priests, you know, which was really kind of what I grew up Catholic Mary understanding about it. And even with some other classes, this, I didn't catch on to all of this, but if, if this is what's going on, people wanted Jesus to be king. I totally got that part. But if that wasn't Jesus' intent, how does that inform my faith, how I act on that faith, the old what would Jesus do kind of thing? Will it change it? Will it add to it? Will it take something away? I'm really interested to see how this context is going to inform. I mean, I understand. I understood a fair amount about that there was a lot of turmoil and that the Romans wouldn't want another king. Big surprise. But the way this all came about, I think, is just really important. And, and that's where I'm wondering is how this is going to, what's the influence of a 
of this going to be on our study in the next few weeks? Yeah, it, it does. It does for me make Judas a more sympathetic character mm. because oh. he got into this movement expecting one thing and became disillusioned when he saw that's not what Jesus was about. Mm. One of the things we talked about in our group, we stuck to the, to the list pretty much um, was how Herod came to be in power. He wasn't like born into that. He ascended into it through political appointments. And that seems to give some understanding to why when he heard that there was a king, all the babies had to go, you know, because he didn't want a challenge to that appointment to king. Right. I mean, that kind of, that kind of is the modus operandi of all of these guys, right? Every time they get to be king, they kill off everybody else who might be king. Yeah. Now, and that and that did raise a question that I asked in our small group, which was if it was such a crime to have people killed without the approval of Rome. You know, and again, this is moving forward and I know we're not supposed to do that, but um did he get Rome's approval to cure those babies or were they not considered yet to be fully human and therefore he didn't need to get permission because of their young age? That's a great no. question. I do not know the answer to that. That would be a great thing to try to find out. And the, the, high, the high priests were like in the same boat. I was surprised at that. Like the, it was not only like kings trying to dethrone kings, but it was high priest wannabes trying to, Dethroned. I mean, they were all in the murder and conspiracy and craziness too. I'm like, wow. Yeah. And I really did not know that Herod was not born of the Jewish faith. I didn't know he, I didn't even know that there was the point where the, I don't remember which brother it was, went down and, and forced everybody to become Jewish in that one area. Right. Well, Herod was born into it. Um, but it's it's shallow. It's only a, yeah. a couple of generations back. You know, it's not so that far back. I because I was always like, okay, my my soft heart is always like, how could somebody do this to their own people? You know, like, and it's like, well, he wasn't really. They weren't really his people. Bingo. He was an Idumean. Enemies yeah. from like forever, right? Yeah. So that makes more sense why Herod was the way he was, because I was like, how did this dude ever, you know, get to power when, you know, he, and then I knew he wasn't from the house of David because they would have, you know, said that. So it was like, how did he get to power? I had no idea that's. Yeah, just, just while you're talking, I'm getting chills just because of the the implications to how you understand the New Testament because of knowing this stuff. It just changes everything. Donna mm. said, um, she said, I think it will expand our, our understanding at least. We discussed the gospel of Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie. Pilate mm. passed it off to Herod and neither mm. wanted to be involved or take responsibility really. Risk of mass rebellion or anything like that because like, right? The whole name of the game, if you're Herod or you're, you know, Antipater or anybody in power is you got to fly under the radar. You cannot be having rebellions happening in your space or Rome is going to come in. And I would add that Herod, um, having betrayed the Jews at one point, is probably trying to figure out how to make sure he doesn't upset that apple cart again in a way that would destroy him. Yes, he's got to keep he's So he's keep really walking a fine line here. Yeah. yeah. Another no. thing oh another thing we talked about was the difference between the written and oral Torah and how we feel about written and oral scriptures in our lives you know 
Um, one thing is, I, and I shared this with our group, is years ago, I did research on Islamic law and the clerics keep an oral law in, in that. So we still have cultures that do use oral law and how it's interpreted. And there's fine details to each thing. And I got the pleasure of learning a lot of that, but how when we look at the written word or we hear it preached to us, I look at my old Bibles and I see, wow, that was shallow or that was harsh or judgmental. It's often the lens in which we view the information we're receiving because I see it now. And one example is there's, there's the vote coming up in my church and our church has decided to discuss the vote. And our preacher preached clearly using scripture. And I wasn't certain if I was hearing what I thought I was hearing or what I wanted to hear, because that piece of scripture could, could support either viewpoint. And I was uh. trying to see where my pastor was coming from. Thankfully in the room with me on retreat were two other girlfriends who were listening to, and they said, Oh yeah, he wants to stay. Oh yeah. He wants to stay. And I went, okay. I heard <laughs> what I thought I heard, but it could be that same that same scripture flipped the other way. So it depends on the lens in which you're receiving the information. Yes, I and that is so important. That's, I mean, if the lens always needs to be God, the person of God, the character of God, the characteristics of God, the mercy, the compassion, the love, the patience, that's got to be the lens, you know, overall. But you're talking like even more just how we interpret, you know, use our oral traditions to interpret the written scripture, right? Yes. Or, or the, or, um, there was a sermon recently about something that God helps those who help themselves. And it was all about, that's not in the Bible. That's not, it, God isn't in that business of just helping those who help themselves. It was a very good service. But you hear that all the time and people think it's in the Bible. Any other observations? Erica, did you have something? Yeah, what stood out um, when we were talking the oral versus written is that <clears throat> all my life I grew up being taught that only the written, what was written in the Bible is the truth, the ultimate truth, and it, it's infallible. And then that oral is, could be misinterpreted, it, it could be um, biased. Yeah. And now, even with the 1946 document or the movie that's coming out, it's like about the word homosexuality and how that was added. It, it just highlights that both the oral and the written can have, um, can, can have some inaccuracy. It was um, Julia that said, you know, it's, it, it was inspired. Well, there's such a, um, we, we, Christians, I'm going to use the, the term really kind of broadly and whatever, um, who have such a concern for what is truth and what is not truth and having to take a stand and that, you know, then you get into a good verse, you know, a right versus wrong, have lost sight of the long standing Jewish and I think don't quote me, Muslim tradition of study and thought and debate. And I think, I think it's called Midrash yes. in the Jewish tradition of, of 
that there is that humans are to bring our intellect to this and consider scriptures super important, but not the only thing that we should interact with. Um, and by that, I don't mean where well, you go to the Midrash and you don't go to the ancient scriptures. What I mean is that you look, um, you use tools in your backpack, right? I think that your tools in your backpack whether Jewish people would refer to it similarly, that's kind of what they were doing when they and are doing still to this day, to this day, they work to understand their scriptures. I think, and they think that's just fine. <laughs> and we fight about whether or not that's even fine to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, one of the one of the things that was the biggest sort of mind liberator for me was something you said where you said when the Hebrew Bible was written, when these stories were beginning to be written down, for people in that culture, it was not things did not need to be factually accurate in order to be true. And we in modern Christian church equate factual with true and don't understand that those were seen as completely different things when the scriptures were written. Yes, including the New Testament. I mean, all ancient writers and, and even into the New Testament, you know, they're telling a story. I, I see this as, I see the scripture as being like a conference room in which we go together and have dialogue with the Holy Spirit and with each other. Um, anything else? We need to wrap up soon. We got started late um, today, and I want to warn everybody that we'll go back to our normal MO, which is we start at 11 a.m. on the dot. And so if you're late, you'll miss some of it, but it's all recorded, so you can always catch up. And you can join at any time and leave at any time. Nobody gets pinged or dinged or nobody knows whether you came or you went. Um, it's, it's, it's okay. People come and go as they need to. So any last thoughts? I just had a quick question. Um, did I understand correctly when you were talking about, you know, the different kingdoms and where Herod came from, was he a descendant of Ishmael's line? No, he was he was a descendant of of Esau. Oh, okay, okay. The Edomites. Okay. Yeah, which are now called Edomians. Yeah. Okay. okay. That, that makes more sense. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to call it a day. It has just been so good to be back together again and to to be able to dig into this. And um, next week we will actually dive into the New Testament, but I thought that all of this yeah. stuff was so necessary. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.